All right. Our scripture this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of God. Amen. Well, man, I got to tell you, I'm all the more excited for our Christmas Eve service this year because I don't know if you guys could hear, especially on this side of the room, but when the kids were in here before they got up to do the, you know, their kind of performance type song, uh, they were just singing away. It's like they knew the words to hark the hair, you know, the angels sing and all that stuff. And I'm just like, oh, it's going to be so good. It's already good. So thank you, parents. I know you guys have probably been listening to those two songs or three songs a lot this week. <laughs> so what a gift to the church to be able to share in that joy with, with you all. Well, it seems no small thing to me that Jesus' strongest words were reserved for religious people. I mean, all of Matthew 22, for example, is Jesus almost throwing it down playground style yelling at these, these Pharisees, well, I should say speaking sternly with these Pharisees, these religious leaders, calling them things like brood of vipers, calling them hypocrites, saying you're loading on people things that you yourselves can't carry out. Uh, it seems to me that Jesus' sternest words were to the religious folks in the scriptures because in a way they ought to have known better, right? Well, the same is true today. Uh, we come today to a very famous, perhaps familiar parable or spiritual story to, for, for many of you. Even if it's not familiar, it's easy to read those words, hear this story that Jesus taught uh, 2,000 years ago, and immediately go, okay, this Pharisee, this bad model of what we're not supposed to be, like, okay, that's that person, that's those people over there, certainly that's not me. The problem with coming to a text like this with that mindset is to fail to realize that Jesus is teaching here about this Pharisee, this religious person, this religious leader, was not about a Pharisee to a group of Pharisees, but about a Pharisee to his disciples, Luke 18 verse 1 tells us. His teaching was to his disciples, in other words, to his followers, his, his followers then, but then also to his followers today. Meaning, if we come to a story like this and just immediately tune out because we think, oh, well, that person can't, can't be me, then we, we fail to miss what Jesus actually really wants in front of us. And that is for each and every one of us to consider this. Uh, we are in this series called Unpacking the Essentials. And today we come to a very important, vitally important essential, this essential of humility. So today we're going to be unpacking humility, and humility is so important. Uh, in this text, I just love how Jesus and, and Luke, the writer, just kind of spells out, hey, this is what, the, this, is what this is about. Because he kind of, Luke kind of bookends what we're talking about here uh, in verses 9 and 14. Verse 9, he says, to those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable, okay? And then after concluding the parable, he ends with this statement in verse 14, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, 
and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In fact, in that same verse, Jesus goes so far to say of these two people in this parable I just sold, told, only one of them, because of his humility, went away, quote, justified before God. To be justified before God means to be made righteous before him. It means to be, to be accepted by God. So if I can use two theological words here, humility is vitally important in our justification, how we come to God, how we are accepted by him, saved. But humility is also vitally important in our sanctification. That is our ongoing growth in God, becoming more like Jesus. Humility is absolutely critical. And you know, it's polar opposite. Pride is devastatingly destructive. And boy, you don't have to be on Twitter to understand that. I mean, that's just everywhere, everywhere, and not just out there, here. So we need to talk about this, understand this. Jesus really wants us to wrestle. He really wants us to unpack humility and understand it's important. And here with this parable, he gives us a masterclass on humility. So we're going to get into it today and understand it's important in our lives. But first, let's, let's pray. Father, what a gift to be able to sing together with the, with the kids. I'm reminded of that Bible verse that says, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, you have ordained praise. Just worshiping alongside them today was such a gift. Lord, would you bless them? Would you bless their families? Would you bless all those who formerly serve back there with the little ones? And Father, as we uh, open up your word together today and look at this text on humility, Lord, would you soften our hearts? And help us to receive what it is you have for each of us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so a couple of lessons on humility today. How I want to do this structurally is pose two questions and then consider a promise, okay? So two questions and then a promise. So the first question is, do you have a sober understanding of self? Okay, let's look back again at the first few verses. To some who were confident of their own righteousness... And looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, a religious leader, and the other a tax collector. That is just somebody who is known in that society, or at least seen very much so in that society as being a sinner, right? Just social outcast. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So clearly, Jesus here is making a point. This Pharisee had an inflated view of self, right? He just thought very highly of his own nature. Uh, because what is he saying in this prayer? He's saying, God, look at what I have done. Look at who I am and, and who I'm not. And he's, he's trying to appeal to God essentially on the basis of his good works, if you were here last week, we looked at the famous encounter also in, in Luke chapter 18 of Jesus and the rich young ruler. And in that text, this rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, before even getting at that question, says, good? How can you call me good? No one's good except God alone. The, the whole book of Romans has been called, has been labeled a treatise of the gospel. The book of Romans is such a helpful, uh, systematic 
theology teaching on the gospel. If you ever want to just kind of have an understanding of what the gospel, the good news is, read the book of Romans. It starts out with Paul, the, the apostle, uh, writing to this early group of Christians, mostly Gentiles, meaning non-Jewish Christians in this ancient city of Rome, uh, spelling out what the gospel is. It's uh, the power of God, a salvation available to all who believes, a righteousness from God that is from first and last by faith, he says. But then he goes on to quickly describe why we need this gospel, why we need the good news. And in Romans 1 through 3, he kind of starts to lay it out. In Romans 1, he goes and he says, you know, those people... Roman Christians, those people, the non-religious people, like everybody has, has the ability to see God in creation, just in the world, who he is, his divine nature. Everybody has the ability to do that, but everybody has essentially rejected him. And almost certainly, as Paul's original readers, these early Gentile Christians were reading Romans 1, they almost certainly were thinking, oh yeah, that's totally it. Those, those folks, they, re- they reject God. They see that he's there, but they reject him. Okay, well, in Romans 2, Paul goes on to say, you know, so too the Jews, you know, God's chosen people, they have the law even, the Hebrew scriptures, they see God even more clearly, and yet they have rejected him and his ways. And almost certainly, the Roman Christians, Paul's original readers, must have been thinking, oh yeah, you know, it's a bit of a bummer, but those too have rejected God. And then Paul in Romans 3, kind of brings it all together and says, you know what, but everybody, everybody falls short of God. And what he calls it, everybody's rejected. He says, no one is righteous, not one. No one seeks good. Everybody has an exceedingly wicked heart. And what he's saying there by Romans 3 is saying, and this includes you, Roman Christians. I mean, that's the gospel. The gospel is we all desperately need Jesus. We all exceedingly reject God. We all exceedingly, and, and so, I mean, think about that. But here is this Pharisee pointing to his good works in prayer to God. See, here's what I've done. Here's the person I am. He doesn't have a sober understanding of self. And, you know, in that same kind of section of scripture, Paul says this, you therefore have no excuse You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Do you have a sober understanding of self, of your own sinful nature? You know, as a uh, pastor in my earlier years, uh, a while ago, I used to, you know, when people came to me with struggles and sin, I would want to sit in with them, of course, try, you know, not to judge, certainly not, and just try to help them and just kind of be in that with them. But you know, the more, the more I pastor, and frankly, the more I live life and learn about myself, it's not just that that's going on when someone comes with a struggle or sin. What also is now going on increasingly in me is seeing how, man, I too am very sinful. As people are working through struggles, I see myself and my own struggles. It's not to say that when someone brings a struggle or sin, I'm like, it's a one for one, like that's exactly how I, no, no. But it's these same things exist inside each and every one of us. We need to be exceedingly careful on our view of self, understanding that we, we, there's no one righteous, no one who seeks God. You know, there's another really helpful text in the scriptures. Very famous story in John chapter 8, where again, the Pharisees show up, not as good examples, teachers of the law, bring this woman they caught in the act of adultery. Always needs to be said, where was the dude? They didn't bring that guy. But they bring this gal 
caught in the act of adultery and bring her before Jesus, really to lay a trap to Jesus. They already have stones in their hands ready to condemn this gal to, to death. And they want to see how Jesus is going to respond because the law said, well, that's the punishment for adultery. And Jesus was about the law, keeping the law, but he's also about grace. So how is he going to wiggle himself out of this one? Let's see. Stones in hands, they say, the law says this. What say you, Jesus? And it's pretty incredible. Jesus stoops down and starts doodling in the sand and the dirt. Just doodles for a little bit. We don't know why. We're not told why. Maybe to dissipate some of the tension there. But then after doodling for a little bit, he, he, he looks up and very famously says, okay, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then stoops back down. Starts doodling a little bit more. And we're told this very interesting detail. They all started to leave. Starting with the oldest, they began to leave. And that detail just sticks with me more and more as I just kind of consider not only that text, but also life, my own life included. Why did the oldest people leave first? Why, did, why were they the first to drop their stones and be like, you know what? Yeah, can't do this. Typically, hopefully, the more we live life, the more we realize what the scriptures teach us, what, what Paul taught in Romans 1, which is only echoing what Jesus teaches all over the place, and that is there's no one good, not one. No one's good except, except for God. So we need to have a sober view of self. And this guy, he's just looking down on others. Thank you, God, that I'm not like this robber, uh, like robbers or evildoers or adulterers or even this tax collector. My dad had a mentor decades ago, who used to say, comparing your sin against someone else's is like comparing the, circum the, the, the circumference size of two gnats. He's like, is there a difference? Certainly there's a little bit of a difference, but not really. Not really. We all just, we, if you start to compare yourself, there's, there's no basis to do it. And yet, it's so, such human nature to do so, wouldn't you say? And what Jesus is saying here is, don't you dare judge. Don't you dare compare. Have a, a sober understanding of self. And so let me ask, do you have a sober understanding of self? Do you have a sober understanding of, of your own sin? And do you tend to judge or compare? Because typically when you and I are, do, do that, compare or, or judge, it's, it's because we have an overinflated view of self because we're... We're stacking the odds against that person coming out on top, according to our own standard. Do you tend to judge folks? Is there, a, is there a certain demographic in our society that you tend to judge? Uh, do you tend to judge those closest to you? Because maybe you see their sin a little bit more than others, and you just decide, well, that's, but you fail to see your own, even as maybe they even point it out to you from time to time. Humility has a sober understanding of self. Do you have a sober understanding of self? Second question. Do you have self in its proper place? Do you have self in its proper place? I want to read the Pharisee's prayer just one more time. And as I do, listen to how many times this guy refers to himself in this prayer, okay? <laughs> the Pharisee stood by himself, Jesus said, and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. In the original Greek, he uses the first person pronoun five times in a very short span of time. This dude isn't praying to God. He's praying to himself. I listen to how one commentator put it. It is entirely possible to address your words to God, but actually be praying to yourself. 
because your focus is on yourself, not God. Your passion is for your agenda, not God's. Your attitude is my will be done, not thy will be done. C.S. Lewis, Christian thinker, author, uh, says we have to be very careful with humility's opposite because pride really takes two forms as he sees it. On the one hand, pride takes the form really like this Pharisee who's saying, look at me, look at what I've done. Me, 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 in that sense. And I imagine many of us, most of us, all of us could think of examples of that, say in the workplace where there's folks who, you know, any chance they can are saying, well, that's what I did. Or managing up in such a way where whenever anything good happens as well as I, I was the one who kind of contributed to that. But then there's this other form of pride that's harder to spot because it hides itself, C.S. Lewis says, in a bit of a false humility. Uh, what pride ultimately is, is saying the, the world revolves around me. It's about me. And that doesn't just come in the form of, look at me, <laughs> look what I've done. For instance, consider how the tax collector does not respond. We've considered the Pharisee and how he's a bad example, okay? But consider how the tax collector does not respond because this guy prays, uh, certainly overhears this Pharisee's prayer, but he doesn't go, you know what? How dare this Pharisee pray like that? I see him behind closed doors. I see him when he's not wearing the priestly robes. Like that dude, he's nowhere near as good as he's saying he is. In other words, the tax collector doesn't get defensive. But nor does the tax collector go, oh, this Pharisee, he's kind of attacking me. He's kind of clumping me in the group of tax collectors. And certainly tax collectors aren't all that great, but I'm not that bad. In other words, this tax collector doesn't get, it doesn't start to deny things. It's pretty incredible. He doesn't get defensive. He doesn't deny. What does he do? He seeks God for his mercy and compassion. Here's the, the verse. Tax collector wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know what's incredible about this verse in the original language is it's actually not him saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's literally saying, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. See the difference there, right? This tax collector is saying, hey, I'm not just a sinner among many. I'm, in, as far as I see it, the chief among sinners. That's how he's approaching God. Again, I think the Apostle Paul is a great model and example in all of this. The Apostle Paul, I like to think of him as, as the goat of church planting. Greatest of all time. This guy started so many churches all throughout the Mediterranean. It's incredible the impact this guy had. And so much of how he did it, we have so much of his, of his history recorded and his heart recorded in the scriptures as he wrote to these early church planters. He was just a selfless leader. He was a servant leader, just literally, literally in the end, giving his life for the sake of others, caring for them. And he didn't get a whole lot of love back. Just a servant type dude. And so at certain points, for instance, in Philippians 4, 8, he wrote things like this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And then he says this. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I mean, that makes sense. He's an apostle. He had the authority, but also the humility to go, hey, model your life after you've seen the way I've tried to go about this with you. Model it. It'll go well for you. Okay, that makes sense. 
And yet, there's also other places in Scripture where Paul wrote things like 1 Timothy 1.15. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Wait a minute, Paul. Are we supposed to emulate you or see you as the worst of sinners? What's going on there? I think Paul is modeling for us what growth in our understanding of Christ is all about. And humility takes a front and center stage in all of this. Because what we see is as we grow in our faith, we grow in our understanding of who God is and who we are, and we realize increasingly that we don't measure up. He is way better and more incredible and, and, and loving in all the ways that we understand. We, we, we grow in understanding that while we understand how far we miss the mark. Even perhaps as we're getting better, becoming more like Jesus, we realize more and more how far I've heard it said this way. As we grow in the faith, we, we learn that we are far more sinful than we ever dare, dared imagine. But also, increasingly, we learn how, how much more loved we are than we ever dared hope. And that's so much of what the Christian life is as we grow in Christ is all about. But you know what the key ingredient in all of that is? Humility. Understanding that we just desperately need God. We need his, his love for us. Humility places self in its proper place. What place is that? There's this really cool website that I came across a few years ago and put on the screen. Uh, this website called I Am Second. Have any of you guys come across this website? It's pretty cool. It's an organization that's put together a, a bunch of stories of famous athletes, um, celebrities, politicians, just a number of folks, all telling their story of how they are second and how God is first in their lives and how that one distinction, that one transformation in their life has changed everything for them, for the good. When you and I put our faith in Jesus, we become second, and that is a glorious thing. Why? Because we put ourselves second to the one who's first and in whom the world does revolve around. The universe does revolve, life actually does revolve around. And he is the author and perfecter of, of love in our lives. And in us and through us, he wants to offer love. But you know what gets in the way of that? Perhaps more than anything else, our pride, putting self first. Let me ask a couple questions and then we'll... We'll look at the promise. Just think about this a little bit more practically. Uh, when you pray, are you going to God for God? Because think about it at, at, at a very fundamental level here. This Pharisee was coming to God in prayer, wouldn't you say? Like he was, he was praying to God, and yet he wasn't praying so much to God. He was praying to himself. So when you, come, when you come to God in prayer, are you coming to God for God, or are you coming to God for yourself? I was thinking about this in terms of, you know, modeling this for our kids. You know, bedtime with our kids, we'll, we'll say prayers at night. And it's always just a really fun time as you're talking men, just praying together. And I realized, you know, I, I don't want to be just praying for things they need, we need in those times. I want to be making sure that we're also helping them learn to pray to God and thank him for who he is and what he's done. And in those prayers, listen for him perhaps to speak and think about responding to him or confessing when we don't have it quite right and all these kind of matters. Now, does God want to hear our kids' requests to God and my request? Of course he does. But is that the only way we're coming to him in prayer? I mean, think of it this way. The Lord's Prayer, 
this model prayer that Jesus said, hey, when you pray, pray like this. It includes, give us this day our daily bread. We are to bring our needs before God. But does it start that way? No. How does it start? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. When you pray, are you going to God for God? In your relationships, are you going to them for them? Think about that one. That one, man, that one, you know, you can journal that one out for a while. No, I could. It's interesting. It's so easy. When you think about humility and pride and how we can just easily jump into one or the other, it's so easy without even realizing to go to people in our lives, relationships, especially those we're closest to, for instance, marriage, and think that we're going to them for them, but really we're going to them for us. Oh, you need to change. Oh, you need to, but we're really, really more concerned about ourselves than we are about, about them. Humility has a sober understanding of self. Humility places self in its proper place. And then finally, we're given this wonderful promise. Humility, Jesus says, will be exalted. Speaking of the tax collector, he said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. There's a Bible verse along these lines that's repeated three times throughout all the scriptures. And you've got to figure, if God wanted to have it repeated three times, it's kind of important. But it's essentially saying what Jesus said here. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. You know, our world, our culture, more or less says, go out and get yours. Claim it. Say, this is, you know, this is about me. Look at me. We celebrate dancing in the end zones and all that sort of thing. But we're told in so many places in the scripture, those who humble themselves will be exalted. Is that really true? If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. You know, my favorite example for this is Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. Have you guys read that? It's a good book. Got to read it. Uh, And he, it's a social science book. And so he's just trying to quantify everything find empirical data and everything. And so he, he d- decides, you know, through quantifications, like what, what makes a great company versus a good company? Okay, he's got that worked out. And then he goes, okay, he starts doing all these interviews and looks at all these different mat- matrices. And he goes, okay, how can we determine how those companies are great as opposed to just good? And what he discovered, perhaps centrally so, is that the great companies had humble people working for them. Now, he said, I understand my readers will be able to have examples come quick to mind that are the opposite. They have like a real anything but humble leader. But if you look at the data across the board, they're the exceptions. Like so often you have people at these great companies who are humble, the people who defer credit to others, people who are constantly thinking about the needs of their team and the mission before their own. And he said, what's crazy if you, if you don't stop to think about it, look at the data. What's crazy is we don't realize, but those are often the people who are getting the promotions because people actually see that and value it and want to raise them to the surface, which kind of makes sense because you think about it. I mean, we all know some examples that are to the opposite of people who are proud, who kind of get raised up, but it doesn't usually go super well for that team when they do. Jesus is saying here, the humble will be exalted. He's talking about here and now, but he's most of all talking about in the next life. He says, humble yourself and you will be exalted. And the reason why Jesus could say such a big statement like that, a 
powerful statement like that is he's saying, because that's how the world works. In fact, that's how your creator is. Jesus wasn't just teaching, hey, be humble because it'll go better for you. Jesus is teaching, be humble because you follow a God who is humble. And it's in his image that you've been created. The gospel at its heart was God becoming humble, humbling himself. Uh, Philippians 2 just nails this out of the park. He says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. In fact, that word actually more literally is slave. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. We're getting ready to celebrate Christmas. I think we can so easily, as, as Christians, forget that at the heart of the Christmas message is a God humbling himself to take on our flesh and to walk around with all of life's hardship and impurities for the sake of loving us. I mean, he was born into a poor family, into a manger. Talk about a humbling set of circumstances. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. God, the creator, died. And not just any death, a criminal's death. He was stripped of his clothes, hung up on a tree, laughed at, mocked, and sneered. You know, it was, it was pretty incredible to me. I mean, if, you, if you keep reading here, you'll see, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of, of God the Father. What hit me this week, it's never occurred to me before, I don't know why, is the fact that, okay, clearly we see Jesus humbled himself, taking on our flesh and dying. Why? In order to die for our sins, including, by the way, pride. But what didn't occur to me until this week is God the Father also humbled himself in giving Jesus the name above all names. I mean, we follow a humble God, a God who's looking in, in that moment. In, the gospel is God becoming second to loving us first. And Jesus is saying, be humble, because one, pride will just tear through society, tear through your relationships cause so much pain and devastation, mostly in ways you won't even see. But don't just do it because you'll be exalted. There's a promise of, of good and it'll lift you up. Don't just do that. Do it because this is who you were created to be. You created an image of a God who is humble. So, let me conclude our time by just asking, could you imagine the impact this would have in our lives through our lives, if we move the meter just ever so slightly and becoming more humble. I mean, you and I, we don't have to become all that more humble, although that's the call, okay? We can become humble like Jesus. But even if we just come slowly, slightly more humble, can you imagine the impact that would have in your workplace? Can you imagine the impact that would have in your marriage? Can you imagine the impact that would have in our church relationships? And this is what God makes available to us. It's the power of humility. It's the power of, first of all, coming to God, because we can't come to God without humility. We can't come to God without saying, I don't have it together. I can't save myself. I need you. So it brings us into a relationship with him, but it's also our ongoing way of deepening in our love for him, growing in him. And as we do this, the world will be blessed through God's humble love through you and me. So do you have a sober understanding of self? 
And do you have self in its proper place? And if not, uh, what could that look like for you even this week? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the humble work of Christ. Coming into this world to live for us and ultimately die for us. Thank you for covering over all our sin, including our pride, which we are more often than not, by a wide margin, blind to, like the Pharisee. Forgive us for how we compare ourselves to others. Forgive us for how we despise them. Forgive us as a church collectively how that's how often many people see us in society, but the gospel roots that out from the heart. And you have a very strong teaching for your followers, and that starts with us. So thank you for your love. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins, that we can receive that love. And Father, would you help that same humble love flow through us in our marriages, in our church, in our closest of relationships, and out into society, all for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.